Welcome to the Get Cozy Podcast, where we talk all about the coziest of book genres, the cozy mystery. I'm your host, Christy Meyer, and I'll be bringing you author interviews and keeping you up to date on all the hottest cozy mystery releases. We'll be diving into the latest episode after this quick message. So grab yourself a cup of your favorite hot beverage and let's get cozy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back, my cozy friends. I'm so excited to finally have a new episode for you after a very long and unexpected hiatus. And I am even just as excited to chat with today's very special guest author, Mia Pimenensala, who is, of course, the author of the hit cozy mystery novel, Arsenic and Adobo. The second book in the series, Homicide and Hollow Hollow, came out in February. And readers are already highly anticipating book three, Blackmail and Babinka, which will release in October. Mia uses humor and murder to explore aspects of the Filipino diaspora, queerness, and her millennial love for pop culture. She's the winner of multiple literary awards and a lover of all things geeky. Mia spends her days procrastinating, which is a word I absolutely love. <laughs> She plays JRPGs, reads cozy mysteries, and dreams of becoming best buds with Wonder Woman and Kamala Khan. So welcome to the show, Mia. It's such an honor to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to chat. Yeah, absolutely. So since Homicide and Hollow Hollow is the most recent release in the Tita Rosie's Kitchen Mysteries, do you want to start by telling our listeners what Lila is getting up to in Shady Palms in this book? Sure. So Homicide and Hollow Hollow takes place a few months after the events of book one. And um, Lila is still kind of reeling from those events. So she's having a bit of a hard time, but she's trying to put it behind her because on the surface, things are kind of looking up in her life. She has the cafe that she's always wanted. She's opened it with her best friends, Adina and Elena. Um, Things are finally going well at uh, her family's restaurant. Um, but the end, her love life is, uh, you know, <laughs> interesting at the very least. Um, but then the town's um, beauty pageant, the Miss Teen Shady Palms beauty pageant, it has come back and it's something from her past. Uh, and it it brings up some really uncomfortable memories for her, particularly of her deceased beauty queen mother. Mm-hmm. And so... Considering that she's dealing with so much, she kind of wants to distance herself from that because she doesn't need any more negative vibes than she already has. But, of course, she gets drawn in because she was a former winner. Um, And while she's involved with the pageant, which has been getting some anonymous threats, the head judge is murdered. And her cousin slash frenemy slash rival Bernadette is um, the main suspect in his murder. So they've got to kind of put their differences aside to, to clear her cousin's name because, you know, as annoying as she is, um, Lila knows that there's no way Bernadette is the killer. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I just love, love, loved this book. You managed to retain the coziness of the genre while also diving into some really important topics. I had fun, the story gave me all the warm fuzzies that I expect from a cozy, and yet I also walked away feeling like I learned through the reading experience. So in my opinion, this was just such a great follow-up to Arsenic and Adobo, and I can't wait for the next book. Oh, thank you so much. Um, this was... You know, like this was a, a really tough book to write, um, you know, and I touch on it in my author's note, you know, like both me and Lila were at really rough <laughs> stages of our life um, mm -hmm. uh, for book two. Um, and as hard as it was for me, I guess I was able to kind of channel some of the issues I was dealing because I wrote this book in 2020 and mm -hmm. we all know what 2020 was like. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but it was, it, it was kind of natural for how Lila was feeling. And so I wanted to touch on things that not that the most cozies at least the ones that i'm familiar with don't really seem to do which is like the repercussions of being involved in these kinds of investigations mm -hmm. um you know i mean like i know they're meant to be escape. I mean, that's why i love the the genre right they're meant to be escapists they're meant to be fun we're just supposed to close it and be like ah justice served that was great um but i also felt it was you know it's already a somewhat unrealistic genre I found it even more unrealistic that these amateur sleuths, you know, Lila's only 25 years old, you know, uh, this 25 year old cookie baker, mm -hmm. you know, three months prior was involved in this really heavy murder investigation where her li own life was like at risk. And, you know, opening book two with her just being like, oh, that was wild, wasn't it? Ooh, time for another adventure. It, it didn't feel right to me. Right. You know? So I wanted to touch on certain things that felt natural for my character and then also let me talk about certain like that naturally let me talk about certain things um, about the community and, and how mental health is kind of handled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I am so grateful to you for sharing your experience as well as Lila's. Um, I, I just think it's so important for authors to share those stories, both for the sake of, you know, their fellow authors who might face similar situations when they're going to write that, you know, dreaded book too, but also mm -hmm. just on a human level. It's so important for people to have open conversations so that we all feel less alone in the challenges that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, if you are not comfortable, like no one, like you don't, you should not feel like you have to lay yourself bare right like mm -hmm. I, I don't but at the same time for me personally i think it's important that we kind of destigmatize you know certain things and you know kind of talking about it openly as as a you know as a natural you know sadly you know part of part of life uh, i felt can hopefully help with some of those conversations mm -hmm. yeah i agree completely i mean i've done therapy multiple times over the years i always try to be open with sharing my positive experience um, just because it is, you know, sharing those stories that changes the stigmas around mental health, um, seeing examples of it, like you've showed us in books that we see in TV shows and movies of people seeking help. Um, those are the things that change those stigmas that normalize seeking mental health care and conversations. And, you know, hopefully leads to some much needed change around accessibility that people can have to that care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, on a, another note, so it was really exciting as a cozy mystery reader to get to see the success of Arsenic and Adobo. You know, we don't usually get to see cozies included in things like Book of the Month or the Goodreads <laughs> Choice Awards. So what was that experience like for you as the author? I mean, 
like Dave, you was absolutely wild, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are like, oh, like, it's like, it's not false. It's like you said, like, I've been a, mis- a cozy mystery reader for a long time. So like, I am aware, you know, that, you know, as I was writing, like, I'm not, I was not writing in a genre that's particularly well known to the mainstream, right? You know, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't get like the big, sexy, like splashy, like, like a domestic suspense or, you know, or a romp or something like that. So I honestly had my bar set pretty low, not because I didn't have confidence in myself or in the book, but because like, again, I knew where cozy mysteries tended to fall. Like mm-hmm. they have a very devoted following. Um, but they're not usually, again, like the book of the month picks or the Goodreads choice or, or anything like that. So when I found out that it was chosen for the book of the month, like that was a huge author goal for me that I thought I would never hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I found out, I was so happy to be able to like, to reach an audience that I normally never would have. Right. Cause, um, book of the month usually focuses on maybe like thrillers, romance, literary fiction, historical fiction, stuff like that. Yeah. I, I don't. I think mine might have been the first cozy they've ever highlighted. It's the first one I've seen. So that's really neat. And it just, I feel like the the cozy mystery community, like, you know, just like the cozy mystery books we read, we're such a tight knit community. To, so to see one of our authors, you know, get to participate in something like that was just so exciting. It felt like a win for the whole community. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like cozies are very often not considered for awards and things like that, unless like, you know, if you're familiar with Malice Domestic, which is like a, a reader convention dedicated to traditional mystery, you know, cozies are very well celebrated there. Uh-huh. But for other um, awards, you know, even in the, in the mystery, you know, crime fiction category, cozies are usually not the ones that are uh, recognized. And so it felt, you know, so good to, to have that kind of recognition, to be, you know, to introduce people to cozy mysteries who, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of messages like I never heard of cozy mystery and I can't believe this is entire genre exists. And I'm so excited to dive in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I, I love introducing people uh, to cozy mysteries. Yeah. And this is such a great introduction. And I feel like there's so many like uh, millennial cozy mysteries now that a lot of readers who've never picked up cozies before, like they read Arsenic and Adobo, and then they discover all these other uh, cozies that they're interested in as well. So it's it's really cool. It's been fun to see so many people coming into the genre in the past couple of years. Yeah, definitely. And also how like the genre is growing and changing. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, like the, the cozies we've, we've grown up loving, are, like obviously they still exist, but there are also other perspectives and other stories that are being told that make me so happy to see. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing I really appreciate in your novels is the glossary and pronunciation guide that you include in the front, um, both because I want to pronounce things correctly and because you do explain what some of the different food items are that we're going to encounter in the novels. Um, and since Hollow Hollow is the star dish of this book, do you want to explain what that is for our listeners who may not yet know? Sure. So Hollow Hollow is, you know, it's kind of considered like, just like adobo is considered like the national, like, I guess, savory dish of the Philippines. Hollow Hollow is like the, the national dessert. It's basically like um, a shaved ice parfait. So, um, you know, shaved ice and then hollow hollow literally means mix mix because there's a, like a, a plethora of ingredients that you can include, um, like sweet red bean, um, fruits, um, banana is like one of the most common ones, the, the Sabo banana in particular. It's often topped with like leche flan and like ube ice cream. It's usually um, 
condensed milk is in there and then you mix it up so that like every bite has like a little bit of something different and um like but for like you know for parties it's kind of like a choose your own adventure kind of thing it's like it's very common like when i have family barbecues like i'll have all the different possible goodies you can add and you can kind of pick and choose what you want you know kind of like um if you've ever been like to like those frozen yogurt shops that let you choose your toppings mm-hmm. it, it's it, yeah it's kind of similar to have like a similar style like hollow hollow bar because you know it's um you know tastes are personal not everybody loves sweet red bean or not everybody is comfortable you know having 20 different ingredients in there you know so you can you can go the simple route you can do a little bit of everything you can do something in between that's so fun and there's actually a filipino restaurant near where i live that serves hollow hollow and um my husband and i you know naturally we had to go and try some the other day uh, because I had to do research for the podcast. I had no choice, really. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you suffer for this podcast. I know, I know. It's tough work, but someone has to do it. And it was amazing. We can't wait to go get more. Yeah, thanks. You know, and like, it's not for everyone, right? Because some people are texture eaters, and I understand that. Some, you know, sometimes it's just um, all those unfamiliar flavors can be a bit overwhelming. But again, if you like shaved ice, if you like parfaits, if you like ice cream sundaes, it's kind of like all of the above crammed into one thing. It can be very refreshing in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so so good. Uh, so another thing that I wanted to chat with you about is you mentioned in the dedication of Homicide and Hollow Hollow that your mom introduced you to the wonderful world of cozies. So can you tell us which books she first introduced you to and how that developed into your desire to write them? Sure. I, I remember because my mom um, works as a page at, at a library and, you know, she it's, which the pages that it's their job to shelve the books, like to return them to their places. And so she told me, you know, one day she was just shelving books and she looked and she was like, oh, chocolate chip cookie murder. Oh, what's that about? You know, the the first book in the Hannah Swenson uh-huh. mysteries by Joanne Fluke. And um, and, you know, just, like my mom's not a cook, but she loves eating just like me. And so, you know, she she was like really surprised to find because uh, mysteries are her favorite genre so um so she was like oh wow like there are books that combine like our love of food and our love of mysteries so she kind of introduced them uh to me to them and i started like buddy reading them with her basically just you know to have something to talk about uh-huh. and it just kind of it just kind of grew from there oh i love that i mean kind of like you mentioned cozy mysteries are just like such a niche genre and mm-hmm. I'm always so fascinated to hear what got people into reading them. And I just think that's so neat that cozies are something that you get to enjoy with your mom and that you get to buddy read them together. Like, that's such a cool bonding experience. Yeah, it's not, because, you know, like, we don't necessarily have a ton in common, but we do love mysteries. Like, so since we were young, she's kind of like fostered, we were young, since I was young, um, kind of fostered, like, my love of mystery. So, you know, like, I was reading, like, Mary Higgins Clark in grade uh-huh. school because of her. You know, she would read the books and then pass them on to me. You know, there was none of that, like, oh, this is for adults. You can't read it. She was like, oh, if it was in the house, it's a fair game. Right. So, um, so yeah, my love of mystery started pretty early. That's so neat. Uh, my my grandma and I, she's, uh, well, she turns 91 this month, um, and she's amazing. And so we've started buddy reading the Agatha Christie books together because that's ah. her, <laughs> her favorite author. So it is just so fun to get to like buddy read books with a family member. There's something just so special about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so we have to talk about dachshunds for a minute. Because <laughs> I have a little doxy myself, and so I just immediately, I fell in love with Nisa. So why did you choose to make Lila's pet companion a doxy? 
So I knew for sure that she was going to have a pet because it's a cozy mystery, right? You can't have a person attack without a pet. Mm-hmm. And I knew it would be a dog because I'm a dog person. Um, but what kind of dog was, um, I wasn't sure. I was like, do I go Corgi? Is that too, you know, and then I was trying to think of like really cute, you know, like pet companions. And then my brother, I can't remember. I have two younger brothers. I can't remember which one of them gave me the idea. They're like, oh, why don't you name the dog Longanisa? And Longanisa is a type of Filipino sausage. So one of my favorite foods in the world. And I was just like, oh, that's perfect. Because I think, you know, like dogs named after food things are really cute. I'm like, oh, and if it's a sausage, obviously (laughs) I need to pair it with a sausage dog. So like it had to be a dog. So the name came first. That's so cute. And then I kind of was like, oh, clearly this is the type of dog it has to be. So yeah. I love that. It, like, I just think doxies are the absolute best. They're so cuddly. <laughs> and mine actually is part of the reason why the podcast was on hiatus for so long because I had some health issues and then dachshunds are, have like notoriously bad backs. And mm-hmm. so she ended up um, blowing a disc in her back, like just kind of startled and jumped and was instantly oh, paralyzed just out of nowhere. Puppy. Yeah, it was terrible. So she had to have emergency surgery and it was like, we had to do 24-7 care and rehabilitation and exercises. And yeah, it was a long, uh, very stressful experience, but she's doing much better now. And so we're just so grateful for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I have such a soft spot in my heart for Nisa and I just love it anytime she's <laughs> on the page. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you both seem to be doing better. And, you know, yeah. I would love a niece. Like, I have two dogs already, but they're not dachshunds. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I really would love one. I keep trying to convince my husband. He's like, we do not need a third dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, but my author brand, it would be so good. <laughs> I have to. It's for research. <laughs> what kind of dogs do you have? Um, they're both mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, Gumiho, I'm pretty sure, is a Jack Russell Terrier mix. I adopted her back when I still uh, lived and taught in South Korea. And then Max, oh, what is it? I think a Beagle mix. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they were both adopted. So, like, it's kind of like we think right. this is what they, yeah. So. so fun. Puppers are just the best. And I feel like, you know, as a book person, you have to have a cuddly companion. It's very necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so back to your book. Um, another thing I loved in Homicide and Hollow Hollow is the way that you changed the rules of the beauty pageant. So do you want to talk about what those rule changes were and why you incorporated them? Sure. So first of all, the reason I chose beauty pageants is because, you know, I jokingly say it, but at the same time, I really was fascinated. The Like, what does small town America and the Philippines have in common? Oh, they really love beauty pageants. Um, and I always wondered like what like Filipinos fascination with beauty pageants were you know again this is me generalizing but mm-hmm. um but like when I growing up I noticed like you know uh, like my mom who cares nothing for fashion or, or any of that kind of pageantry still loved watching them like she'll always like she'll still like message me and my brothers she's like oh did you see the Miss Philippines something something you know like that kind of thing a lot of uh-huh. pride in it and and I was like why why is it such a big thing thing like why like why it's, it's almost like part of the national identity i guess you could say and so i wanted to do research into that and then so and then also i love miss congeniality and, and <laughs> yes. so i'm like so i knew it'd be a great setting uh for for a murder mystery and so you know like so like those things slowly converge and like the more i learned about the more it made sense you know like so like for the philippines you know, like we call them you know here like they're, they're like oh like 
like in Miss Congeli, it's not it's not a beauty pageant. It's a scholarship competition, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, which you know, which it is, but you know, in the Philippines, it very much is. You know, for a lot of those the girls and the women, like this is a huge chance for them to you know get enough money to like get an education or to help out their families or their communities. And, you know, it's over there being a beauty queen almost makes you like, like an activist. Cause you choose a cause that you care about and you champion it. Like you're expected to do things after you win the crown. Wow. Right. There's, There's a lot to it. And it's just like, Oh, you know, the expectations of what winning means is very different, you know, over there than over here. And then, you know, this was kind of like a way for me to also, again, like <laughs> tackling some heavy themes, but in a lighter way, like think about like patriarchal standards of beauty, colonial standards of beauty, particularly, you know, the relation between the U.S. and the Philippines and, mm-hmm. and those kind of and just like lots of that were things that I was that, you know, I was thinking about and grappling with. And so I was like, why is there a swimsuit competition? What is that supposed mm-hmm. to prove? Why, you know, our our understanding of like gender and, you know, what uh, um it is a little bit different now. And so like, how, like, how are we limiting and how are we, you know, being inclusive and like, what are, what, what can that look like? Um, just like lots of things like that were on my mind. And so I wanted to like, you know, if, if you were going to have a modern day pageant with someone who's trying to, you know, not perfect clearly, but still trying to be forward thinking, what are some changes that they would naturally want to make? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's kind of the stuff I was thinking about. I love that. And what what a like fascinating place uh, to start your research and bring that element into the story. Because um, I, I remember doing those like, quote unquote, scholarship pageants here in the US as a child. And at the time, like we just I mean, this was like the 90s, right? So we didn't really think about the problematic nature of a lot of the elements mm-hmm. in those competitions. Um, so I, I'm just like, I want everyone to read this book. I hope that pageants make changes like this. And, you know, it's so, uh, so interesting to hear about the difference between what those pageants mean in the Philippines versus what they mean here. Um, cause mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's a, that's also a change that we could definitely take on here and not make those pageants so much about like traditional beauty standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, like, this is just like through my research, you know, like, I, I've never experienced it there. So I don't know. But like, the, the articles I've read, like, there's like articles and videos and books about like, how to, you know, how to become a beauty queen and what it means and, and giving back. There's like, there's so much material actually there. And mm-hmm. so, you know, again, like, it's it's one of it's very, very double sided. We're like, it's still very much again a beauty pageant and mm-hmm. what the ideas of what a beautiful woman means right that, that idea of feminine but it also is like this other side to it where like well okay you know some of these women like a lot of the women i've read like are very accomplished right. and so like they're using this as a platform to a to further their causes or it's like oh wow okay so there's a lot you know going in you have these stereotypical ideas of what a beauty pageant contestant who a beauty uh, pageant contestant is right like what mm-hmm. kind like you're like you know you can be very stereotypical like oh like they're just gonna be vapid or they want attention or they want this and they want that and like there's just there's so much more right yeah absolutely and 
I would never like judge anyone who participates. Like Mm -hmm. women are already at like such a disadvantage, like use what you got and get what you, you know, get Mm -hmm. your dreams, go for it. Um, It's just like, let's look at the, the pageant itself and what we're, what we're evaluating people on and how we're defining beauty in our culture. And then what we do, you know, as the winners from there, how they go forward and, you know, pay, pay it forward within their own communities and make those social changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So another element I wanted to talk about is, you know, the culinary cozy. I always say the author has done their job. If I <laughs> am constantly hungry while I'm reading the book, and you certainly achieve that uh, in both of your novels in the series so far, your food descriptions are so vivid and the recipes you include are just absolutely mouthwatering. So do you come up with those recipes yourself? For the most part, yes. So basically what I do is I do some research online first just because like I um, I kind of want like a baseline like okay so this this recipe exists you know whether it's like the more you know traditional um, savory dishes that you know Dita Rosie makes or the traditional desserts that uh, Lola Flor makes or even the more experimental ones that Lila does so I want to see what exists out there I want to see what the baselines are and then I kind of tweak them um, so for me, like my baseline is like, does this taste similar to something that like my father would have made? Because um, in my head, because like, my father was the cook in the family. Mm-hmm. So for me, Filipino food tastes the way he made it. Um, and so like, that's my benchmark. So, you know, again, like I'll take a recipe. And I'm like, oh, this is good. But why don't I do this and then try to tweak it to my palate? That's so cool. I I can't cook uh, to save my life. So it's, <laughs> whenever people can like come up with recipes or like talk about tweaking recipes, like it, it blows my mind. <laughs> but it's just so cool as a reader to get to experience a part of an author's culture or just like their family history through their books. And I feel like that's especially the case in cozies because we do frequently get those recipes and the very vivid food descriptions that we just don't get in any other genres. Yeah. And, you know, set like I wish I could be sharing my family's recipe. My dad was such an old school cook. He never really measured anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like this is my way of trying to be like, well, you know, you know, because he, sadly he passed at the end of 2018. You're like, I'm not gonna be able to eat his food again. So like if yeah. I want to taste that again, I have to make it. Because, um, you know, like I still like I do, you know, um, go to, you know, Filipino restaurants in the area. There's a couple of them and, you know, I'll still order from them. But if I, again, if I want to taste his food, I have to kind of make it the way I remember it tasting. And like, this is like the, so some of the more, more of the, some of the more savory recipes I include, um, it's like my attempt to kind of recapture that. Okay. Wow. So that's a, that's a very personal connection that you and Lila share then. Cause she kind of mm-hmm. does, does the same thing with her mom's recipe, her chicken recipe. Yeah, that was one of those, um, oh, I can't remember, like, where, like, I remember, like, someone mentioning that, like, the idea, like, the the fear of, like, the memory, like, the taste memory you have of a dish not matching up with, like, the reality of it, mm-hmm. um, and something as, you know, as special as just, like, oh, um, again, like, that idea of, like, oh, you know, her mother passed away when she was young, she's never going to be able to taste her mother's chicken again. And so, like, what is that like, um, you know, finding that recipe, trying to make it again, trying to recreate it, trying to capture that feeling? Because, you know, a lot of times it's not just the taste. It's like the feeling, mm-hmm. right? The, like, there, there's a context around that dish that makes it taste a certain way to you than it, than it does to somebody else. Right. Um, 
So I wasn't like at the time, the idea wasn't from my personal experience. It's from someone else's who had, had talked to me about it. But then I, I probably like poured some of my own feelings into that scene itself. Wow, that's really neat. Uh, I like that moment in the book uh, really was something that like as a reader, like it really hits you in the feels. Um, and you know, I feel like that usually does happen when the author is also very emotionally engaged with the moment. So you definitely feel that. Oh, that's great. Thank you. It was like, it was actually like a longer, I think I was like really like working things out. Um, and my editor, like, you know, like this is great, but it's starting to pull away from the narrative. Like, can you condense? And also like the longer you drag it out, the less effect it has, you know, Mm. Uh, like if you're just kind of wallowing in a scene. So like making it tighter, but making the descriptions more vivid are, mm-hmm. is actually more impactful than like going on and on and on about it. So I was like, oh, you know, like, so that guidance was really, really helpful. Yeah, that's awesome. You have an amazing editor. Yeah, they're great. I have two of them. So I'm lucky enough to have two of them. So like, yes, they are excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I also wanted to talk about your side characters because you've got some incredible side characters in the series. <laughs> I particularly enjoy reading about the calendar crew they always have me laughing out loud. Um, so who are some of your favorite side characters to write? Definitely the calendar crew and Adina. Um, so in Arsenic and Adobo, Adina actually, who's the best friend character for those mm-hmm. who are not familiar with my books, um, she actually had like an entire subplot that I cut because she is such a strong character that her narrative was starting to overtake Lila's story. And it you know, it was Lila's story. And I, and so even though like, I really had fun with it, even though I thought it like really fleshed out Adina's character well, and I thought it was good, it didn't serve the book. So like, it had to be removed, but you know, Adina's like that character, it's just like, oh, I wish I could be that bold, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and the same thing with the calendar crew, it's just like, oh, to just say whatever you want without caring about the, the consequences. <laughs> or any, um, they are definitely, again, it's one of those like, Ah, uh, being on the receiving end of those comments, not awesome. But being able to like write them, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, I love reading about them. And yeah, I adore Adina. And I was actually doing a reread this week um, just to prepare for our interview. And I found myself really appreciating Bernadette's character. You know, mm-hmm. like she's a flawed character, but she's so well developed that we as readers just understand her and we root for her. And I'm very invested just to continue watching the growth between her relationship with Lila because I, I just, I see so much potential in her and I am just really cheering for her. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, uh, again, I am lucky enough to have not personally experienced this, but I know lots of people who have that, you know, um, like families who use their children uh, like to brag and to compete against each other, you know, cause they, there's always, you know, there's so, it's so common to be like, Oh, did you hear? So, you know, my, you know, son got into this school or yeah, well, my daughter got this or, the, or, you know, my child works at this like, you know, fortune 500 company, like the, the bragging rights, mm-hmm. you know, that parents do and then they force their children into these rivalries because they get home it's like well you know so-and-so's daughter does this why can't you do that or, or did you hear this person got this on their test why aren't you scoring that high right and so you know um lila and bernadette's mothers were best friends but they also were rivals and they were using their children 
in their rivalry. And so like they grew up thinking this is like, you know, this is how they had to be. Like this is how they had to interact with each other. This is what the relationship was. Um, and they're slowly realizing like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why do I have to be in competition with you? What is the point of this? And so it's it's a process, but they're starting to come around to that. Yeah, and you do like such a great job of showing that. And you can also see um, how much Bernadette and Lila do genuinely care about each other and how like when it comes down to it, they are there for each other despite how complicated their relationship is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like sometimes I, I kind of enjoy like these relationships where it's like, I love you, but I don't really like you. you know? <laughs> it's like a weird kind of like, yeah, you know, like that's kind of what it is. It's like, you know, like you like they're not blood related, you know, even though they work for each other's cousins. But like, that's the kind of family bond they have, you know, like, oh, you are really, really annoying. And I can't stand being around you. But like, I, you know, they would like you know, like take a bullet for each other. Like they would really, they're there for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I appreciated that so much more in my second read uh, of the book. And I just, I'm really excited to see what you do with it next. Thanks. I mean, I, I appreciate a second read. Like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, people's a, reading time is precious. Like even that one time is great. It's like, ooh, a reread. Yeah. It's a very rereadable series. <laughs> So I, I, I'm always very happy if I want to like read a book a second time. That's how I know, like, I really loved that book. Thank you. Yeah. So another thing I love is the way that you incorporate Lila, Elena and Adina's cultures into the Bruja Cafe. So can you tell our listeners what type of food items are going to be on their menu? So the Bruja Cafe is like, I'll admit it's, it's like a thousand percent like wish fulfillment, you know, <laughs> like I... I think a lot of us, you know, have had idea like I would love to run like a cafe or a tea shop or some kind of thing like that. Um, but like not the actual like hard business running it, but like the fun aspects right. of it, you know. So like, you know, Lila's Filipino-American, Adina is Pakistani-American and Elena is Mexican-American. And so all of their cultural backgrounds are reflected in the space, you know, and on the menu. Lila's bakes are, are mostly like Filipino inspired, but she, she will like, uh, you know, I'm trying to work in more um, aspects of like the other two. She's like, you know, cause like she'll make bakes that are in, uh, influenced by like Adina's background. Like a, she'll have like a lot of, you know, we're, I'm starting very basic, like, like chai spice things, uh -huh. um, like, like, like chai spice scones or something that's like on the menu. Um, Whereas Adina is constantly coming up with like specialty drinks that reflects all of their backgrounds. So like, you know, like, like book three, Blackmail and Babinka, which comes out in October, like there's a scene because it takes place around Christmas time. So Adina is like doing like traditional drinks from each of their cultures, like that would be around that time. So mm -hmm. like, uh, like she is making like a tole, which is like a kind of like um, uh, a Mexican corn drink. Uh, that's served like hot often for breakfast or, or like a snack or something like that that comes from Elena's background so just being able to pull from all these different very rich culinary histories is a lot of fun yeah it, the like the food the drinks it all sounds incredible and I love like uh, Elena's plants and just the whole mm -hmm. witchy vibe they've got going on like I wish I could visit in real life 
I know. It's again, it's like, it's like my dream cafe. It's like, okay, so we're going to have like plants and herbs and teas and beauty products and candles here. And then these like delicious, like and really creative, like, you know, uh, desserts over here. And then like this wildly, uh, ins- you know, uh, inspired drink menu here and just like all these different kinds of things right like that's the cafe you want to go sit and write mm-hmm. in just all day long <laughs> yes exactly so frequently in a cozy the detective of the investigation and our amateur sleuth have a very contentious relationship where the detective is always telling them to butt out of the investigation or there ends up being like some kind of romance um, but in Homicide in Hollow Hollow, Detective Park actually asked Lila to help him with the investigation. So why does he decide to do that? So I didn't want to keep having the cliche of them, like of, of like the protagonist and the cop constantly butting heads or falling in love, but it still had to be kind of natural. So with the Detective Park character, I wanted to be like, he is someone who recognized that he was wrong for the way that he handled things in Arsenic and Adobo, right? Mm -hmm. So he acted in, you know, like he, again, this was like a good intentions, right? He truly believed in the things that he was like, he wasn't trying to railroad her. He wasn't trying to take the easy way out. He genuinely was following the steps he thought he was supposed to be taking, recognized that he was wrong and is like doing his best to kind of like, apologize and make up for that Mm -hmm. and then um and so like with the beauty pageant so when the story starts it's that there are these anonymous threats against the pageant which the police department is not taking seriously and so you know because there is like no like case or investigation going on because it's being brushed aside as a prank you know he's just like you know like well you know normally i wouldn't want to get civilians involved but there's you know they're treating it as if there is nothing so Mm -hmm. you know i know you are all intimately connected to the pageant in some way could you just kind of keep an eye out and let me know if you hear anything or see anything um that could that kind of like pertains to this because like he wants to make sure because again this is miss teen right so these are you know these are kids right he's like he's like he wants to make sure that these these girls are safe um, and, you know, Lila does not want to get involved, but at the same time, how can she not knowing that, again, that these girls' lives could possibly be in danger? Yeah. And, you know, I, I love my cozy cliches, um, but I really found that dynamic between the, t- the two of them just so refreshing. And I also really appreciated how supportive Detective Park was of Lila and how he kept encouraging her to go to therapy and I felt like he really ultimately was being a very good friend to her. And I'm very excited to see that friendship hopefully develop in the next books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with the Detective Park character, I want it, it's, it's, again, like, I know this is a cozy, but that, like, there's, it, it's, you can have a good cop who is, but who is still affected by a corrupt system, mm-hmm. right? So he personally is a good dude. But the the more like I guess antagonist would be like the police department itself, right? Which you know, um, you know, some calls it, but there are like just certain aspects where they're like they you know want to keep their head down, they don't want to make waves, they want to take the easy way out. They like they, you know we live in a good town kind of you know thing, right? Um, we're like yeah, you can't have a good cop, but they're still kind of bound by you know 
certain aspects of their job. Right. Yeah. Like the department seemed to be so concerned with like their image and public perception Mm -hmm. and their standing in the community versus like Mm -hmm. actually getting justice. And you could see that Detective Park did not agree with that. And I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things that are like, it's tough to reckon with in, the, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in this time that we live in. It's like, how can I, again, be true to the cozy roots and the cozy expectations of, of my readers? Because again, like that's, again, you pick up these books for a reason, right. but also be true to what is going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I do just want to say again, like, because we've talked a lot about some of the the, uh, important issues that you do touch on in this book, but it absolutely does retain that coziness. Like this is 1000% a cozy mystery book series. You fill all the warm fuzzies, like you're, you walk (laughs) away happy and satisfied. It's like a warm hug, but you still just got these important issues worked in there, which I think is brilliant and so important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Shady Palms itself is just such a charming setting and it was a pleasure getting to visit again while reading Homicide in Hollow Hollow. And the town is small, but it has a very vibrant culinary scene. So if you could eat at any restaurant in Shady Palms, which one would you choose? Oh, man. Like I knew this question was coming because you were kind of, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still kind of like, oh, what do I do? I know these are the like, hard hitting questions. I because <laughs> like I just I love food so much. I'm like oh, I don't know. It depends on how I feel on the day because uh, they're all so distinct. Right? We have like Big Bishop's Barbecue. It's like, am I feeling like hearty soul food? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like I kind of always want like sushi. So like maybe like sushi with the you know her friend Yuki and Akio's restaurants. Uh, it's hard to go wrong with like Mexican food. Uh-huh. It's, yeah, it's like it's it's such a day by day thing. <laughs> but oh, I, if I had to choose, like um, with my personal tastes, I really really love seafood, and so I guess like the uh, and I particularly love like sushi and sashimi and things like that. So probably uh, sushiya, which is like the the Japanese restaurant in town. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, you could you could eat at a different restaurant in Shady Palms every night. Like that's <laughs> that's probably what I would have to do. Like just set up a schedule. Like Monday we go here, and Tuesday we go here. <laughs> just a culinary tour. Yeah, there's just so many great ones. And reading the descriptions, oh, it's just. I mean, us cozy readers love our food descriptions, and you <laughs> nail those in this series. So that was really fun. Thanks. I really appreciate it because like for me, descriptions are actually one of the hardest things to write. And I mm-hmm. usually leave them for last and I kind of agonize over them. And so, you know, hearing them like, oh, th- you know, that someone thinks that I did well. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I spend like an inordinate amount of time trying to describe how a dish tastes where I'm just like, I can't believe I'm spending so much time on this. But I, I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, if for people who've never tried to write a book, <laughs> describing things like uh, taste and touch and movement it's hard it is so hard it really really is you know it's like how many ways can you say something was delicious right right how do you describe a flavor that has no real comparison to maybe an American palate because again like with ube which is like a purple yam which sounds not appetizing but we use it so much in Filipino desserts and I love it you know or pandan which is like this um this leaf that we use in everything we call it like the southeast asian version of vanilla right Mm -hmm. again very delicious very aromatic but it doesn't 
exist in the U.S. necessarily. So it's like, how do you describe these things? So I spent so much time on that. Yeah. Oh, I, I can only imagine because reading them, because it's not only like you describe it once, right? Like you can't use the same descriptions if you describe that same food later on in the book. You have to do it mm-hmm. differently. So it's just, it's, yes. it's really impressive. And while I was reading it, I was just like, oh my goodness, she's so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And things like texture, you know, like I know for people, texture can be like make or break. And mm-hmm. so for me, you know, and again, and, and a lot of that can be cult. Some of it's personal, some of it's cultural. So like culturally, I grew up with like Asian desserts, which tend to be very chewy. The ones that are part particularly made with like um, rice flour, like especially glutinous rice flour. And I love that texture. Uh-huh. But I know for other people who can't stand it. And you know, it's like, how do I describe this without making it sound like weird or gross or like off-putting to them? You know? Right. Yeah, no, you, I mean, we, I walked away and I was like, okay, let's, because we live uh, in the country in Utah. There's not a lot of uh, diverse restaurants around here, but we do have the one Filipino restaurant that's close by. So like, oh, we went and yeah, now we're going to be going back on a regular basis. And it's because of these descriptions that you wrote in your book that were like, this sounds amazing. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. So you were part of Pitch Wars, um, which is a really neat mentorship program for writers. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and what your publication journey looked like from there. Sure. So Sally Pitch Wars has ended. It went, you know, it um, okay. it was a mentorship program that lasted for 10 years. And it just, it got a little too big because it was all volunteer run is, mm-hmm. is the amazing thing. So basically the way Pitch Wars worked was, um, it was meant to prepare you for traditional publishing. So it, it, um, it was for writers who were like unagented um, and you applied to work with, uh, with mentors. So like you applied, you had to have a finished manuscript just the way you would if you were applying for an agent. Um, and you had to have a query letter and like all the things that you would normally submit when looking for a representation. And so what you would do is like there every year, there's like a certain amount of uh, mentors uh, in different age categories. So like uh, it represented like middle grade, YA and adult. And of course, and there was like, the, you know, a, a plethora of different genres. So you would research each mentor to see um, who might be interested or had the expertise to help you with your particular manuscript. Again, mm-hmm. just the way you would with an agent. Right. And um and you were allowed, I believe it was, you were allowed to uh, submit it to up to four. And it was, you know, it was completely free. And like, if, you know, even if you didn't get, like, there were tons of great manuscripts that didn't get chosen. You know, the point was mentors chose a manuscript that they felt they had a vision for and they could help. Um, so, you know, and so, you know, I, I speak as someone who was a mentee and a mentor, like in, uh-huh. in later years, you know, it's so different being on the other side, right? Just because like, oh, this is a great story. But if you don't know how to help it, you know, you can't take it on because there's there's nothing you can do. So Um, and then there's like about when I was doing it, the mentorship period was about three months. So it's a really intense revision period where you're working with your mentor. um, And at the end, there's like an agent showcase where um, you put up like the, the first page basically of your of your novel and agents can kind of request um from that website and so you know it was a really great experience my mentor kelly garrett um was amazing uh she had uh 
like her amateur sleuth series which you might be interested in uh hollywood homicide and hollywood ending oh yeah she has a great yeah yeah she has a domestic suspense that just came out called like a sister so she's been wonderful we've been friends since then uh we co-mentored years after that together um we, we still talk almost every day um but so so but the book that got me into that mentorship program is not the book that became my debut um that book got me my first agent um it got me several awards and grants but it ultimately was not picked up for publishing um so the arsenic and adobo is what i wrote for the year and a half that i was getting rejections Mm -hmm. uh, on that first novel um and then after i finished the manuscript that would become arsenic and adobo my then agent didn't like it um she but she was very honest with me right so she was just like i loved your first book which i couldn't sell this one is objectively better written and more marketable i could easily sell it but Uh i don't love it and you should find an agent who does um and she was right you know because it's my career i need i need an agent who can champion me so you know we split up and i had to find a new agent um and luckily you know i signed on with jill marshall uh, uh pretty quickly and she's been amazing. She was able to sell my book at auction within like two weeks, which is like unheard, wow. which is like really, 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 really rare. Yeah. You know? That's so, so neat. Yeah. I actually, I didn't know that Pitch Wars had ended. It ended this year. It yeah. ended this year. Okay. I actually did um, Author Mentor Match, which is similar. It just doesn't have like that agent showcase at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't even have words to express how much I learned from my mentor. It's kind of like getting an MFA in creative writing in an extremely short period of time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So those mentor programs are incredible and it's always so interesting to hear about authors journeys because it's uh the publication process is so complicated it's kind of a nightmare it's not fun for anyone and like everyone experiences so much rejection through that so thank you for sharing your story it's it's uh I think inspiring for other authors to kind of hear what you went through um, mm-hmm. multiple agents, that's not uncommon. Going on submission, not selling, also not com- not uncommon. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, publishing is a tough business. Yeah, I mean, with the um, with my mentorship, it's like, I mean, obviously craft is so important, but, like, learning about the industry, because, like you were saying, like, the publishing industry is so opaque, mm-hmm. you know? Like, you don't know what you don't know, and they kind of thrive on like not being transparent about certain things. So having mm-hmm. someone who can guide you through the process, tell you what's typical and what's not, and is so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us anything about what you're working on right now? Sure. So I like, wow, last week, two weeks, oh, what is time? <laughs> I within know, within right? the last two weeks, I, I, I turned in like the very absolute last thing for book three which is blackmail and babinka that comes out this october uh october 4th i believe and i am um right now about to start drafting book four um which is titled murder and mamon and it comes out next summer yeah summer 2023 how exciting and uh how many books do you have contracted in the series right now uh so my original contract was for three books okay so um 
but luckily, thanks to the success of Arsenic and Adobo, I, they extended my contract for another three books. So awesome. right now, um, I'm currently promised uh, up to six books in the Tita Rosie's Kitchen Mysteries. Oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. We will happily be devouring all of those books as they come out. Uh, before we wrap up, do you want to just leave our listeners with at least one cozy mystery reading recommendation? Ooh, yes. This summer, oh, I believe it's in July. I'm sorry. I'm terrible at dates. Um, uh, Jennifer J. Chow has a new culinary cozy series coming out. And the the first book in that series is titled Death by Bubble Tea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was able to read an early version of it um, out to, for a blurb and I had a lot of fun with it. I think that's, you know, it's looking forward to it's gonna be a great new series that centers around like night markets uh, in California. Very much looking forward to that. And there was one more that I also wanted to hype. Oh, um, again, I feel, as an author, like it's it's hard for me, like what came out and what is coming uh-huh. out. Um, so another book that I blurbed that I'm really excited about uh, in the culinary cozy vein is by Valerie Burns. It's called Two Parts Sugar, One Part Murder. Um, and I believe it's also coming out this summer. Oh, I'm definitely going to add. Well, I already have Jennifer J. Chow's book on my list, but I'll have to add Valerie Burns as well. Jennifer's been on the show once, and we're going to have her again when Death by Bubble Tea comes out, and I can't wait. <laughs> she is yeah. so great. Yeah, she's really, really sweet, and her that book was just a lot of fun. I was, I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is just again, it's what you want in a cozy, right? It's quick, it's breezy. Mm-hmm. The the mystery is there. The food sounds so good. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. All it, it checks all the quintessential cozy boxes. Exactly. And, uh, one other book that I've read recently that I would also definitely recommend um, is "Renovated to Death" by Frank Anthony Polito. Uh, I'm like a huge fan of home renovation shows, (laughs) despite my lack of DIY talent. Um, but this, like this series is like HGTV meets a cozy mystery. It has a male protagonist. Uh, he's, he identifies as part of the LGBTQIA plus community, which is very rare in cozies. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, he and his partner star in their own home renovation show and the owner of the home they're supposed to renovate is found dead at the bottom of a staircase. And then, you know, mystery and amateur sleuthing <laughs> ensues. And it's just really charming. And I I loved it. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Well, as we mentioned, Mia's latest novel, Homicide in Hollow Hollow, is out now. Definitely be sure to pick up your copy if you haven't already. Watch for book three to come out on October 4th. And before we sign off, Mia, do you want to tell our listeners how they can connect with you online? Sure. So you can sign up for my monthly newsletters. Every month I give um, novel news, uh, events, and I include a a recipe in uh, every newsletter. And occasionally I do giveaways. You can sign up on my website, which is my full name, MiaPMadansala.com. And I'm pretty active on um, Twitter and Instagram, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Sometimes Facebook, it's all the same social media handle. So at MPM, the writer. So my initials. Awesome. That sounds like the, the funnest author newsletter I've ever heard of. So yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely need to go and sign up. 
Thank you. Yeah. Well, Mia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was so much fun getting to know more about you and about your books. And I just wish you all the success with your future novels and just can't wait to read all of them. Yeah. I mean, thanks so much for your support and your enthusiasm and your great questions. I really, really enjoyed this. Oh, good. It was totally my pleasure. And listeners, stay tuned for a quick message about how you can join our brand new Patreon. If you want to support the podcast, be sure to join our Patreon. We have different tiers to choose from to get weekly exclusive episodes, membership in our book club, and podcast merch. You can even choose the coziest supporter tier and receive a monthly Get Cozy book box, which includes one paperback copy of your choice from a selection of books by Get Cozy podcast guest authors each month. To join, visit patreon.com slash getcozypodcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. That's all for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Get Cozy Podcast to see which authors we'll be hosting in our upcoming episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading and stay cozy. Stay cozy.